reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 to 18. You can find it printed in your bulletin, and uh, please follow along as it's being read aloud. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does the man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will, will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and the striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also, also is but a striving after wind, for much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Thank you for the reading. I do want to welcome everybody to Good News Church today. Uh, let me just invite you all to pray with me as, uh, as we look at this text. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word and uh, even the parts of your word that uh, can be very challenging. And as we embark on this new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we do pray that your spirit would guide us, would give us the true wisdom that we need and uh, reveal to us uh, perhaps uh, how desperately we need uh, the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, today we're going to start this new series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, let me just warn you, this is, a, this is a hard book, and it's hard for a number of reasons. Uh, first, it's hard because it's not the easiest book uh, to actually understand. And usually people, when people turn to the Bible, people are looking for answers. But in some ways, the book of Ecclesiastes maybe raises more questions than it does provide answers for us. And if you look at uh, a lot of the, you know, the scholar, what the scholars say, uh, there's, there's actually a wide range of opinions in terms of how to read this book, how to understand this book. You know, one scholar says this is a book primarily about uh, joy and enjoying the things that God has given us. And another scholar says this is a book primarily about how absurd life is. And you have these two ends of the spectrum, and uh, I guess you have everything that kind of falls in between. But there's a second reason why this book is uh, a very difficult book, and uh, it's it's not easy because uh, of what it can do to us. So not simply of um, how we understand it, but actually the effect and the impact that it can have upon us. This is a book that can actually uh, turn out to be pretty depressing in some ways, and uh, I liken it to kind of being uh, the needle that pops a balloon. Picture for a moment. Uh, 
Actually, there's a balloon up there. I don't know why there's a balloon hanging up there. But imagine you give a balloon to uh, one of the kids of our church. And it's a, it's a helium balloon. So they're holding it and they're so happy. And they're saying, thank you for this balloon. Thank you so much. And they don't know that eventually all the air is going to leave the balloon. They don't know eventually that it's going to shrivel up into this useless piece of rubber, but they're just happy to hold on to it. And I want you to imagine now uh, somebody comes along with this needle and just pop and pops the balloon and all the air goes out of it. And uh, you, you tell the child, look, that's what was going to eventually happen anyway. I kind of think Ecclesiastes is like that. <laughs> I think it's like a needle that is going to pop our balloon, except the balloons that we're holding are things like our jobs, our careers, our work, our toil, things like wealth, money, things like knowledge, wisdom, things like justice. We, we hold these balloons and we, we try to find so much, so much hope and so much meaning in it. And uh, what the author of Ecclesiastes, I think, is going to do, uh, if we are holding up those balloons, it's going to take a needle and it's going to pop it. And that can be a, actually a very harsh lesson. And uh, he can kind of seem like a jerk for doing that. But there's actually perhaps some good that comes out of that. And there's this French writer who says this, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. And I think perhaps that's at least a part of what the book of Ecclesiastes can do to us. Now, at the same time, this book is a strangely, it's been a favorite book, I think, of a lot of people throughout history. And the interesting thing is, whether they're a Christian or not, uh, a lot of people seem to have been int interested in this book there's so many cultural references to it. You have that book by John Grisham made into a movie, A Time to Kill. Uh, you have that song by the birds, Turn, 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 for every season. You have movies like Gattaca and Platoon, and they open the movie with a quote from the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, it just seems to be one of those books that a lot of people seem to like. Herman Melville, uh, he's the author of the great novel Moby Dick. And he says Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. Melville really loved the book of Ecclesiastes. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is we actually, I think somebody actually has the physical Bible that he used. And the book of Ecclesiastes is all right, marked up. He spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes. And I think that's why you see a lot of parallel themes between what Ecclesiastes is trying to say and in his novel Moby Dick. Captain Ahab. He's on this foolish search to find this big whale that he will ultimately not be able to catch. Now, what's interesting about somebody like Herman Melville, he grew up in a Christian home, but he never ended up embracing the Christian faith. And even though he didn't embrace Christianity, uh, I think his relationship with faith was a complex one. He was friends with Nathaniel Hawthorne, another American writer, and uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, in one of his writings or one of his letters, he talks about Melville and he says this about him, that he could neither believe nor be comfortable with his unbelief. And I thought that was a, such an interesting way to put it because what that tells me is Melville was uh, the kind of guy who couldn't truly embrace the Christian faith and accept the Christian faith, but he also had a hard time embracing or being comfortable with the alternative. And 
he fell some kind, somewhere in, in the middle. He struggled with both. And I think there are a lot of people in the world who are like that. You might be somebody who's not completely convinced of the Christian faith, but you're also somebody who is not convinced of the alternatives that the world has to offer. And so what you do is you find yourself in life continually searching for something that is meaningful, something that makes sense to you. And I wonder if that's why maybe the book of Ecclesiastes resonates with so many people, especially the type of person like Herman Melville, because it invites us to follow this person, this preacher on the search that he is about to embark on. As we go through this book, man, I really, I really struggled and wrestled with how we should preach through it. Should I do it chapter by chapter? Should I do it theme by theme? But here's how I want to frame this series. Uh, I want to frame it as a search. It's a search. In verse 13, this preacher says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. He's searching for something. He's searching for something of substance under the sun. And just like Captain Ahab was searching for this great white whale in Moby Dick, so too is this person searching for the ultimate thing, the ultimate prize. And so who is this person? Who is this preacher? Well, if you read Ecclesiastes, uh, you're going to notice something. There, there are actually two voices here. Uh, you have one voice, the voice of the narrator, and the other voice is the voice of the preacher, which uh, the Hebrew word for that is Kohelet. And most of the book is written from the perspective of Kohelet, uh, but the beginning and the end of this book is written from the perspective of this narrator. And you can kind of see that easily because uh, verse 2 talks about the preacher in a third person. It says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. And then starting in verse 12, it begins to switch to the first person. And he says, I, the preacher. So we see here, this person named Kohelet, who is he? Uh, some people think he's, he could be King Solomon. Uh, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, other people think that it's probably not King Solomon, but maybe some literary creation that's supposed to resemble a King Solomon type. But regardless, we know that this is a person who uh, experienced the world, who is able or has the ability to experience anything and everything possible under the sun, somebody who can do whatever he wants and experience wealth and riches and wisdom and knowledge and everything that everybody else perhaps is trying to pursue. And he's trying to give us a report of that search. Now, uh, you're going to notice I'm calling this person Kohelet, and there's a reason why. You know, <clears throat> I don't think preacher is the, the greatest translation of the word Kohelet, and uh, it's kind of hard to find an equivalent way of translating that word. Uh, it comes from a Hebrew word, Kahal, which means to, to gather, to assemble. So you kind of imagine this is a person who gathers and assembles, person, uh, assembles people uh, for the purpose of probably teaching. And so maybe a better way to understand this person, he's, he's some kind of teacher or some kind of philosopher. And uh, this person, Kohelet, is thinking about life under the sun and seems to be deconstructing uh, maybe some of the answers that people have arrived at. He's on a search. He wants to find something real, something with substance, something with meaning. And I think this is a search that many people, especially in New York, can perhaps relate to. Why do people come to New York? I think people come to New York because they're looking for something. We're searching for something worthwhile, and we think we're going to find it in a successful career. We think we're going to find it in perhaps an education. Uh, 
We think we're going to find it in living uh, an exciting life in New York City. We think we're going to find it in things like pleasure. We think we're going to find it in things like relationships. But what ends up happening is most of the time we end up becoming way too busy to ever reflect and to think about, is it worth it? Is it worth spending all of these hours chasing and pursuing this thing that I think I ultimately want? Ecclesiastes will give us an opportunity to do that. Now, I actually think searching for something uh, is probably more fun than actually finding something. And I know some of us will say, well, I'm, I'm getting a little bit tired of searching and looking. I wish I could just have an answer ready. I wish I can get at the destination already. But if you think about it, what happens when we find something? Well, we get bored with it, and then we begin a new search for something else and for something new. And it's so interesting how you can even see this dynamic with kids. And my daughter, Abby, she's going through this phase where she likes to play hide-and-seek. And so at home, uh, she'll always say, Daddy, hide! Daddy, hide! So I'll hide. I'll go into the closet or I'll hide under some blankets so she can look for me and she, and she tries to find me and she finds me. And right after she finds me, she laughs for like a second and then you know what she says next? Daddy, hide! Right? Because she knows after she found me, the game is over and then the fun is over. She enjoys the search of it all. I think there's something exciting about the search. Some people like to shop uh, and just kind of like to look around for leisure. It's fun to do that. Maybe we do that online. We just kind of like to look around online and see potential things we can buy. Uh, some people like to just date around and don't really want to settle down in a relationship. Why? Because the search of finding someone is a lot more interesting or a lot more fun. Some people like to think about all the possibilities of where we could possibly work. And so even though we may have a job, we're always searching for another possible job. Some people always think about where we could possibly live. So even though we have a place to live, we're always searching for another place that we can live. And even when it comes to church, by the way, uh, you find more people in New York City looking for a church than actually settling in a church. Why? Because I think sometimes looking for a church is more fun than actually finding one and settling in a church community. And you think about that and uh, you ask yourself, why? Why is the search sometimes more fun? And I think the answer is actually very simple. It gives us hope. You see, as long as we are in this posture of searching, then there's always the hope that we can do better. There's always the hope that, we can, that things can be better. There's always the hope that we can end up happier than we are now in a better situation than we are now. And so we go on this unending search and we think that the grass is always going to be greener on the other side and we're always looking for greener pastures. But here's the depressing thought. What if someone told you there are no greener pastures? Or what if someone told you that the green grass on that other side it's actually not good enough. It doesn't really do it. You know what the most depressing moment in life is? It's that moment where you've sacrificed so much of yourself to get something, to chase something, to chase after a dream, and you finally obtain it, and you realize it's 
not that great. That's the most depressing moment in life, I think. You look back and you say, what did I just spend my 10 years, 10 years of my life doing and chasing after? For this? It doesn't fill my heart. You know, I shared a quote from Brad Pitt a few weeks ago, and he said in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine, he says he knows he's the guy that has it all. He has the fame, he has the money, he has the status. And I guess at the time of the interview, he wasn't married, so he had access to any kind of woman that he probably wanted because he's so good looking. He had everything that anybody could possibly dream of. And in that interview, he essentially says this, it's not good enough. There has to be something more. I don't know what it is, but there has to be more. And I think in some ways, you know, that kind of statement is more powerful coming from somebody like Brad Pitt because he has it all. He is someone who has experienced it all. And even then, he says, not good enough. Kohelet, he's like that. He's someone who has it all. He's experienced everything that you could ever want to experience. He has lived in the greener pastures. And in his own way, he is saying this, it's not good enough. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. You can see why Ecclesiastes is a depressing book. For many of us, when we're chasing things that we think are going to be so important, and this guy comes along and, like a needle, pops that balloon and says, vanity doesn't mean anything. Now, one of the words that we're going to see over and over again is this word, vanity. Um, by the way, sorry to talk about the Hebrew so much. I, I try not to do that, but I think it's important. That word vanity in Hebrew is uh, havel. And that also is not an easy word to translate. And uh, if you look at other translations like the NIV, it'll translate that word as meaningless, meaningless. But even then, that doesn't really fully capture uh, the sense of what this word is trying to say. In its most basic and literal sense, the word havel means uh, a breath or a vapor or a puff of air. And uh, I think what it's trying to convey is this, that everything under the sun is elusive. It's fleeting. And some people think that the best way to capture the essence of what this word is trying to say is the word absurd. Absurd, absurd. Everything is absurd. Why is it absurd? Have you, have you ever tried to chase wind? Right? Havel, a breath. Right? It's absurd trying to catch it. Kohelet is saying, our pursuits, everything that we are trying to chase under the sun, that's what it looks like. You can't catch it. Absurd. Verse 3 says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the point? A generation goes and a generation comes. The sun rises and the sun goes down. The wind blows and goes around. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. Everything that we do is like a drop in an ocean. If you get that promotion, so what? What is it going to matter a hundred years from now? What will that really change? If you make a little bit more money, so what? What is that really going to change a hundred years from now? 
What difference is it going to make at all? We are so insignificant, and the things that we do are so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. There is just nothing new under the sun. Nobody is going to remember you generations from now. Think about how many of us remember our, just even our great grandparents? What were their names? What did they do? My guess would be most of us probably have no idea. Nobody remembers. And even if、uh, you end up being the exception and you do something amazing in life, you do something that's historic, eventually most people aren't going to really care. You're going to end up being this boring little fact in a history book, and some high school kid is going to complain and say, Why do I have to learn about this person? <laughs> How do we respond to that? You know, I once,、uh, I once heard Jerry Seinfeld,、uh, when, he was, uh, you know, when he was working on his show Seinfeld, in the writer's room, he would have this picture of the Hubble telescope posted on the wall. And、uh, the reason he would do that is、uh, in order to remind him of his insignificance. And he said, You know, I actually find a lot of comfort in my insignificance、uh, because. It takes all the pressure away. Nobody's going to care about this episode of Seinfeld hundreds of years from now, so why am I stressing out about it? Why am I stressing out about life? I'm only going to do what I enjoy. I'm only going to do what's fun. And I'm not going to stress out about work. And that's actually a real option to take when you think about the fact that we're such insignificant people. We can just say, well, what does it matter? Nothing matters, so I'm just going to pursue pleasure. On the other hand, somebody like Judd Apatow, who's also、uh, in right, the comedic business, I, I would say,、uh, he responds differently from Seinfeld. And、uh, the thought that he might be insignificant,、uh, it doesn't make him feel good.、Uh, he finds that thought to be something that depresses him. He can't accept that what he does and his life could not be meaningful. He wants his life to matter, he wants his work to matter. He wants to feel significant, and so the way he responds to that is he tries to work hard, as hard as he can, trying to make something out of his life and out of his work. You know, I imagine some of us can relate to one of those two people, either Seinfeld or Apatow, when we're confronted with this idea that we are not significant. Have you ever heard that story of、uh, Sisyphus in Greek mythology?、Uh, Sisyphus, he was. I think he was punished by Zeus. And、uh, what his punishment was is he had to push this boulder up a hill. And、uh, right before he was about to reach the top of the hill, he would find himself at the bottom of the hill again, only to push it up. And、uh, think about that. Doesn't life feel like that sometimes? We work countless hours. We wake up, we go to work, we come home, we eat. We watch a little TV, we go to sleep. We wake up, we go to work, we come home, we eat, we watch a little TV, and we go to sleep. Just over and over and over again. We are like the little hamster running in this little wheel over and over again. And what does it really mean? Does it really do anything? Is there really any gain? You know, doctors heal people. But people eventually get sick and people eventually die. 
plumbers, they fix toilets, they fix sinks. But those things will eventually break again. Preachers preach sermons week after week. But who really remembers them by Monday or Tuesday? What's the point? What do you gain by all of your toil? And Kohelet, he's saying that. He's saying the fact that we just continue to do these activities over and over again, and it's like chasing after wind. It's a little absurd. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. See, at this point, you might be thinking, man, this guy Kohelet, he's kind of a jerk, right? <laughs> he's kind of a killjoy. What is he telling me? He's telling me that I don't matter and nothing I do matters. And you see why it's, he's kind of like the, the needle that pops the kid's balloon, right? You would, you would consider that person to be a jerk as well. If nothing that we do matters, then we might be depressed like somebody like Judd Apatow. Or we could just respond like Seinfeld and we could just seek after our own pleasures and do everything that uh, makes us happy and gives us pleasure. But here's the thing. Uh, if we accept the idea that there is no meaning and no significance, and if we live life in that way, uh, in a way that says, all right, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares? You only live once. I'm going to make the most out of this life and do what makes me happy. You know, if we live in that way, uh, in a sense, it makes us less than human. How so? You see, I have a dog, and... Uh, his name is Buddy. And you know what I don't think Buddy ever does? I don't think he ever sits down and he says, what is the meaning of life? Animals don't do that. All he cares is about is his appetite, right? All he cares about is his pleasure, getting good exercise, getting food, running around, having fun. That's all, that's all animals care about. But you see, humans, I think, are a little bit different. If someone told you, hey, go chase this chicken around, most people, I think, are going to say, why? What's the point? Why would I chase this chicken around? And you'd need an answer like, well, if you chase this chicken around, then it's going to help you become a better boxer. It's going to improve your speed. Oh, meaning, purpose. That's why I should do it. And then we'll do it. That, that's how we are. We just need meaning. We need purpose. We need significance. We need what we do to mean something. But if we say there is no meaning at all, that I just want to follow my appetite, we just become just like the animals. And by the way, uh, if you look at Psalm 73, when Asaph is repenting to God, he has this interesting line, and he says, I was like a brute beast before you. And he's saying, sin has made me animalistic. I was like a beast before you, God. I've lost a sense of my humanity. And uh, you know what the funny thing is? Uh, I think modern people are actually okay with that. Modern people say, you know, we are just like the animals, uh, when people talk about sex, people say it's, it's a natural, animalistic desire. It's an instinct, and it shouldn't be repressed. And they try to suck out all the meaning and significance out of it, and they turn it simply into a simple desire or pleasure to be fulfilled. 
See, without meaning, there is not much that separates us from animals. And I think existential philosophers, some of them at least, they're actually fine with that, and they say this, life is truly absurd, and life really does have no meaning. But then they'll go and say this, but just be nice and kind to one another anyway. I don't know about you, but to me, that's not a really satisfying response or a satisfying answer. That's like telling someone, chase this chicken without telling them the meaning and the significance behind it. I think only consistent philosophers will say, life has no meaning, so there's no point in doing that. There's no point in loving, there's no point in serving, there's no point in doing good. It doesn't really matter what you do because everything is meaningless. And I think that's a more consistent way to think and to live. But nobody wants to live in a world like that, right? Nobody wants to live in a world without things like love, without things like goodness, without things like justice and sacrifice and chivalry. People want to live in a world where these things actually mean something. And even though most people will say, let's just not think about it. Let's just go on throughout life and love one another. Even though people say that, I don't think it makes much sense. But even though it doesn't make sense, I think the impulse is actually right. I think the impulse is right. Love, it makes life meaningful and enjoyable. Uh, last night, uh, Jen and I, we saw the movie Groundhog Day. It's an old movie. It's on Netflix if you want to check it out. Uh, Bill Murray, he plays this character. And uh, this character starts off as this very self-centered man. Uh, he's all about himself. And uh, what happens to him is he ends up living the same day over and over and over again. Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. This constant cycle. And uh, it, you know, it drives him crazy. It drives him to depression. But towards the end of the movie, uh, you know what he does is he says, well, uh, I'm going to start to help people. I'm going to start to think less about myself and to think about others. And uh, the way the movie ends, uh, what breaks the cycle ultimately of that constant living uh, living the same day over and over again, I think it's love. Love. I think the filmmakers understood something about the importance of love, and it's one of the keys to breaking this cycle of a frustrating life. Now, how does God break that cycle for us? He does it through love. God looked at this world that he created, broken by sin, and in love, he gave up his son to break the cycle. Uh, in Romans 8.20, it says this, The creation was subjected to futility or frustration. And that word, futility or frustration, it's the same word that we see in Ecclesiastes translated as vanity. The world as Kohelet sees it, or at least the world as Kohelet is interpreting it, it is the world as it is broken by sin frustrated, futile. But what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that God saw this broken world, he loved it, and he did something about it. He sent Jesus Christ into this world from above the sun to under the sun to die on a cross to rescue this world from its own absurdity. Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and he ends by saying, Therefore, your labor is not in vain, 
The very thing that makes our labor not in vain is the fact that there is a resurrection, that there is eternity. And because of that, everything that we now do can be filled with significance and meaning. Seinfeld would say, we're so insignificant that nothing we do really matters. And I can see the logic in that, and I can see the beauty of that, in the sense that it can relieve us from our pressure. But Jesus says this, because of the resurrection, everything that we do is charged with significance, even the smallest thing. Even something as significant as giving a cup of cold water to somebody who is thirsty is important and meaningful because of Christ. You see how, uh, how that's radically different from just offering a philosophy. God doesn't say, if you want meaning, let me offer you a philosophical system in which you can create it. He says this, if you want meaning, I've offered it to you in a person. I've broken the cycle of sin and the absurdity of life by loving you and giving you my son. There is more to life under the sun because I have given you life in my very own son, Jesus Christ. Kohelet said, there is nothing new under the sun, but Jesus says, in me, everything is made new. You are a new creation, and there is a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Kohelet says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Jesus says, I have come to make straight that which has been made crooked. Kohelet says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. Jesus says this, I am wisdom personified who makes foolish the wisdom of the world. Kohelet says, all is vanity, striving after the wind. Jesus says, I freed you from the curse of vanity, and I myself have the very power to command the winds to be still. Everything that Kohelet questions finds its answer not in a philosophy, but in a person, in Jesus Christ. We're going to go through this book, and uh, you know, as the weather gets nicer, unfortunately this book is a little depressing and is a little bit of a downer. But maybe that's what we need. Going to that, back to that French writer, maybe we're searching and striving too hard after things that ultimately won't matter. And maybe we need our balloons to be burst a little bit. You know, there are people uh, who don't believe in Christianity, but I think they borrow from the Christian faith all the time in order to create meaning and significance. Uh, I think there are people who don't believe in the Christian faith, but they see the importance of things like love and kindness, even though there is no uh, robust intellectual reason for it. But on the other hand, there are Christians who have every intellectual reason to find their meaning in Christ, but borrow from the world and still try to seek everything that is under the sun. In other words, whether you're a Christian or not, there's probably a good chance that you are being inconsistent. And uh, I think as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, I think it'll confront both kinds of people. Uh, but here's my hope. As we go through it, I do hope it'll reorient us, whether you're a Christian or not, reorient us to see that ultimate meaning and significance is in Christ. 
that the ultimate substance of what we are longing for is not in this vapor or breath that we're chasing for, but it is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I thought about ending there. <clears throat> we're almost done. But uh, I thought this would be a fun activity. You know, after the sermon, we usually respond with a song of response. You know, I have no idea what we're going to sing today. I don't know how you're going to pick songs based on Ecclesiastes. Uh, but, you know, interestingly, there's, there's a lot of songs that I think either uh, draw from Ecclesiastes directly or at least thematically. Uh, you know, a lot of, like, emo music and a lot of classics and so forth. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be really funny if we responded with, like, some of those songs, right? <laughs> We're not going to. That's not appropriate to sing in worship, of course. But, uh, you know, I've toyed with the idea, maybe after every sermon, maybe I'll just read some lyrics of a song uh, that resonates with some of the things Ecclesiastes is saying. And, uh, of course, resonating from the perspective of uh, lacking in Christian hope. And uh, he here's a song I want to end with today. Peter, do you know uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen? Can we sing it? Just kidding. <laughs> All right, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy, I need no sympathy because I'm easy come, easy go. A little high, a little low. Any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head. Pulled my trigger, now he's dead. Mama, life had just begun, but now I've gone and thrown it all away. Mama, ooh, didn't mean to make you cry. If I'm not back again this time tomorrow, carry on, carry on, but nothing really matters. Beautiful song, depressing lyrics. <laughs> This is what Kohelet, I think, is trying to show us in a life without Christ and the hope that he gives. Let's bow our heads in prayer and uh, reflect, and the worship team will lead us.